0: But there are other people whose biases wax and wane depending on their circumstances, depending on who's talking to them and what they're hearing and what kind of language is in the air. Trump has licensed those people, but I don't think all of them are hopeless.
1: And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat a authoritarian populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40 I just want to start by saying a word about a series of terrorist attacks in London over the last months. Um, There were two terrorist attacks as inspired by Islamist ideology and recently there was an attack, a sort of revenge attack, I suppose, of some kind, of somebody, we don't know much about it yet, saying that he wanted to go out and kill Muslims. And I think it shows the degree to which terrorism can become a challenge for liberal democratic societies. Among my friends there's sometimes a slightly triumphalist narrative that we can bear these terrorist attacks. Our societies are stronger than, than them. We can deal without reacting to them. But I think that even though in the direct aftermath of terrorist attacks you don't always see a surge in voter support for far-right populist parties or anything like that. In the long run it's really corrosive of support for democracy, and it really incites different parts of the population against each other. And to me, the danger of real far-right terrorism coming as a response to ongoing attacks by radical Islamists is very real and to be taken seriously. We saw it in some ways with Anders Breivik in Norway, but we saw it again in London now. And it's made me more pensive and a little bit less optimistic about our ability as a society not to let the now quite constant reality of terrorism in fact our political behavior. I'm really thrilled to have George Packer on the show today. George is a New Yorker staff writer who's really written some of the most interesting takes on the roots of this populist moment, a great long article about Hillary Clinton and the populist moment before the election. And he's the author, among many other books, of The Unwinding, which gives you this wonderful kaleidoscopic impression of life in America and the way in which the sort of centripetal forces are taking over and I just had the most wonderful conversation with George on the show about some of the characters he met in reporting The Unwinding and the way in which the sort of lived reality of actually talking to people, scrambled some of the sort of abstract categorizations we like to impose on thinking about the roots of populism is it economic, is it cultural and perhaps the most interesting to me is George's account of the four different forms of national narratives we have about what an American is and how they each fail and how we might be able to create one that, that works better and that actually emphasizes to us what unites us as Americans. Welcome to the show, George. So, George, when I read your writing, it sometimes seems a little bit as for your reporting, you know, made you think that was inevitable that some kind of political explosion along the lines of Donald Trump would happen. What did you see while traveling around the country telling the stories of ordinary people that made up The Unwinding and a lot of the other articles you've been writing about this topic that worried you? I mean, reading The Unwinding, I was so impressed by the kaleidoscope of stories, but I kind of wanted to know, you know, in your words, how to synthesize the worrying things that are on the page there.
0: Yeah, I I deliberately avoided doing that, as you know, because I sort of felt that I couldn't be both a, a writer of narrative and a sociologist at the same time without one, you know, maybe undermining the other. So the, the sociology is implied. The political thinking is implied. It For more explicit account of what that book and the reporting of it left me with, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker just before the election called Hillary Clinton and the Populist Revolt. And that's where I laid out in more systematic terms the trends and themes and really the the harbingers that I began to assemble in The Unwinding. Basically, the people I talked to were isolated in different ways and different places, but isolation was a key element of their lives, whether they were a uh, factory worker in Youngstown, Ohio, or a biodiesel farmer entrepreneur in Rockingham County, North Carolina, or former residents of the ghost subdivisions around Tampa Bay. During the financial crisis and the recession, they, they didn't have any backing. They didn't have any structure to stand on, whether it be a civic group or a church or a local political party or organization or a business that they could count on for their livelihood, and certainly not the federal government. So. That was the first sign of a, a kind of meltdown of what used to be the basis of middle class life which was certain institutions of democracy and I should add news organizations they didn't have a local newspaper that they could turn to for information and ideas So
1: the idea of isolation is really interesting to me and it you know in a way it goes back to the very beginnings of people worrying about the effects of mass society right I mean Emile Durkheim thought that anomie was the biggest problem in modern societies and and that, in a way, is a word for isolation, right? It is, it, it's a lack of connectedness between different citizens and so on. I mean, what is it about life in America in 2017 that lends itself more to that isolation than earlier? And how do we change that? I mean, it seems to me like that is the outcome of such deep economic and sociological processes that, sure, you can change the attitude of the federal government a little bit, but it seems like a huge mountain to climb.
0: Yeah, and I think it's a bit different from the concerns of the sociologists of the 50s, like uh, Organization Man and The Lonely Crowd. It's more in the institutions. It's not the problem of bigness. Bigness is a problem. Walmart, for example, is a major force in people's lives that I met, and Walmart's bigness is part of its destructiveness. But it's not just bigness, it's the weakness of these institutions, the fact that they don't know how to reach people and people don't know how to reach them and the lack of trust and the lack of a sense of this is on my side, even if it's far away, even if it's big, it's on my side. No, that's
1: gone. So so what he's saying is that actually the thing that Durkheim might have worried about in the 19th century and when all these sociologists you referenced worried about in the 50s and 60s was sort of the feeling of being lost in a society where mass institutions are really, really strong, but you're one among a huge crowd, right? Like, yeah.
0: General Motors would be a great example Yeah. Of that. It used
1: to be that society was at human scale, right? I mean, in the sort of pre-industrial villages, you might've been very poor and so on, but there was sort of, you know, you had personal relationships to everybody around you. And now it's just sort of a number in a factory, right? And you're a member of all of these sort of mass organizations, um, you're connected to your trade union, you're connected to your place of work, you're connected to those things, but how do you feel reconciled in a world where you're just a cog in a machine and you're replaceable, right? And what you're saying is that today the worry is actually very different. They don't even have that anymore.
0: Yeah, I huh. was reading uh, Studs Terkel's book, Working, which is a portrait of American jobs in the 60s and 70s. And the problem there is people are trapped in jobs they hate. And they're numbers. They're cogs, whether it's in a factory or in a big white-collar corporation or whatever. Today, the problem is not that they're trapped in jobs they hate. It's that they are uncertain about jobs at all. And the work is part-time and intermittent. They can't count on their schedule if they're working in the stockroom at Target, as one guy I wrote about was. So it's insecurity, not the smothering anonymous life of some giant corporations. The title, The Unwinding, came from Dean Price, the biodiesel entrepreneur in North Carolina. And what he was talking about was the reversing of the mass industrial society that we were talking about. He imagines his own community going back to something like the village scale of the 19th century, where people produce their own food, their own energy, and where the economic life is local rather than giant trucks bringing food in from across the country and it was you know it was a fantasy but it was one that had a lot of resonance and so he imagined America unwinding you could almost say rewinding because the world he lives in which is the world of Walmart and Bojangles. He used to own a series of Bojangles at these truck stops in North Carolina and Virginia. That world was no longer working for people. The food was bad. People were getting sick. The jobs were bad. The recession had made his work, which was truck stops selling fuel and fast food, very perilous. So he was looking for a way out, and the way out to him was a way back to something small.
1: I think there's two tensions here, right? One is about on the one hand, the dangers of these big organizations being a member of them and feeling isolated, but that actually also at least giving you some kind of stable form of belonging, more so perhaps than the critics of the time realized. And then the other tension seems to me to be between this increasing isolation and the push towards larger identities, right? I mean, one thing about our political movement is that people seem to be really attracted to stronger form of nationalism and a stronger form also of white pride or white nationalism in the in context with the election of Donald Trump Then has it traditionally been the case in the United States. And there it seems to me that perhaps that's a sort of odd complementarity as well, that the more isolated people feel, the more susceptible they are to want to feel the belonging in this abstract, you know, category of a nation or a race or something like that.
0: that. That makes sense to me. I mean, what I saw... In all the places I spent a lot of time, these were really in the years, say, 2010 to 2013. I think that those were years that were foreshadows of what was to come. I saw a sense of no more middle class to support sort of the good life. Instead, the money was all going either going to the top or going out of the country and a a growing underclass, a white rural or small town underclass, along with a black underclass. And second, a sense of lack of opportunity for one's children, a lack of a sense that their life would be as good as their parents' lives. And third, a sense of the game being fundamentally rigged, to use a phrase that's become common, rigged in the sense that the people in these powerful, faraway, institutions are looking out for themselves and each other, that it's a fixed game in which they can get ahead by cheating. Scam was a perennial issue. People being scammed, scams getting people things that they didn't deserve, whether at the lower end in welfare, at the top in uh, Wall Street cheats and business government collusion, the bank bailouts, all of that under the heading of scam. And so all of this was reflected in a breakdown in their own communities. I mean, without these institutions, individuals, it turns out, don't have very solid glue. If you don't have a job space, you're going to start finding your neighbors are turning to drugs, turning to petty crime, going on public assistance, and kind of losing their moral nerve. And that is a vast problem in America, especially in the heartland. And it was kind of a silent problem for a long time, because for years, politicians describe these places as the real America. Sarah Palin used that phrase to describe an area right near where Dean Price lives, uh, pretty much the area he lives in. The real America is where there's hard work and church going and people serve in the military. And it's not untrue, but the picture is much darker than that. So without that support from a community that's intact and that's strong and vibrant, especially when you have been raised to think you are the heart of the country, things fall apart in a pretty awful way. And that is exactly the impulse that led, I think, to Trump because it gave people both a sense of resentment and of being somehow having their way of life and their livelihood taken away from them and then the search for a simple answer. And the nationalism you describe is a really invidious one because it is a nationalism of exclusion. It doesn't seem to apply to native-born Americans who are not white. It doesn't apply to immigrants. It doesn't apply to non-Christians. So it became a really narrow and destructive nationalism. But you're right that that's what people turn to when their own communities no longer are thriving and no longer give them a sense of identity.
1: So I have so many questions out of what you just said, but let's start with this one. I mean, I really struggle to understand the nature at the moment of identity and and race in this country, and I want to come back to some of those questions at a more abstract level later in the conversation, but, you know, when you talk to these people all over the country, you know, as a European, I'm struck by the fact that I'm really not convinced that to, you know, the average German, Frenchman, Italian, it's possible to be black or Asian or Middle Eastern and German and French and Italian. They still, I think, by and large have this notion of what it means to be a true German, that but it's very monoethnic, and monocultural that excludes people if they don't look like you, if they don't have the same ancestry. And in America, that doesn't seem to me... I mean, I think there's corners of America where that's true. There's particular, not just geographical corners, but milieus where, where people think that. But that doesn't seem to me to be true of most Americans. I think most Americans, to me, seem to have an understanding that you can be Latino or Asian or Black and be a real American. And yet... We see at least a lot of tolerance for this very radical rhetoric and a form of white nationalism, but certainly animated part of Trump's campaign. So you know, when you're speaking to those people who I'm sure have certain racial resentments and a lot of whom presumably ended up voting for Donald Trump, how would you describe in a sort of you know close to it way their feelings about it? Is it that they completely accept that immigrants can be Americans? They just have an abstract idea, you know, not of the immigrant who they work with or who's sort of, you know, part of a community, but other ones who they think are coming in and cheating the system and so on. Or is it actually a real hostility in these communities between people, you know, who work alongside each other and so on?
0: I mean, it varies, of course. Examples are coming to mind as you speak. So I'll just give you a couple of examples and they're not consistent with each other. And nor should they be really. I remember one family in Tampa, very poor family, close to homeless a lot of the time, white family, as isolated as any people I met, had it in their minds that immigrants, which they identified with Latinos, got some sort of government benefit for being immigrants for like seven years, that there was a program that would support them until they could stand on their own. And to this family, this mythical non-existent benefit was just a huge injustice because people who were born in the country, who had you know ancestors going back hundreds of years, couldn't get the same benefit and were being left behind. And I, I think it was a way of explaining for themselves why it was that immigrants seemed to be doing better than they were. Because In their neighborhood, a lot of the shopkeepers were Latino. The motel owners were from India. In fact, they were from Gujarat. (laughs) In fact, they were all named Patel. (laughs) Um, In Dean Price's part of North Carolina, the motel owners and a lot of the gas station owners were Indian. In fact, Dean sold one of his truck stops to a couple of uh, Indian businessmen who I think overpaid for it. And Dean had, you know, nothing but good feelings toward them. But, um, <laughs> but they were getting, as he put it, their piece of the American dream. And if you're not getting your piece of the American dream, if it's slipped out of your fingers, and in fact, you had been told all your life that it was yours by birthright, then you need to explain it somehow. And the explanation is probably not going to start with either your own mistakes or even with, you know, giant global forces. It's going to be something more like comparing yourself to other people who are not like you. And that's where a certain invidious nationalism can begin. But on the other hand, Dean's county was a tobacco growing county. Dean grew up on a tobacco farm and tobacco, you know, has faded almost out of existence. But those farms that are left are now worked entirely by Latino migrant workers they used to be worked by the children of the tobacco planters, like Dean. He used to pick tobacco as a kid during the summers. But it's really brutal work, and local whites don't do it anymore. It's done by Latinos. And they're, they are respected for that. There's just no way anyone can make a case that they're not hardworking. But I think with that acknowledgement, there might be a sort of unconscious or semi-conscious resentment, because one doesn't like to admit that our people, you know, have kind of given up hard work. A lot of my friends and relatives, uh, thinking uh, along these lines, are on public assistance or are on opiates or crystal meth or prescription drugs, and are maybe in and out of jail. That's the reality for a lot of families in some of these rural counties and even exurban counties. I spent time in. How do you explain it? Well, it's hard to accept full responsibility oneself. It's easier to say it. someone else is getting away with something that I can't get my hands on.
1: That's, I mean, that's really fascinating that actually, you know, there's two ways of thinking about racial prejudice and so on. And one of them is that it's something that sort of is hardwired into the tribal nature of humans and through civilization and education and enlightenment, you can sort of overcome it, right? And so the problem of people who have those attitudes, it's just that they haven't overcome sort of their base human nature or something like that. I think that's a story that we like to tell ourselves, actually. And the way that you're talking about is sort of, well, you know, within the scheme of things, very few people want to think of themselves as the bad guy. I think that's a deep truth. As a mm-hmm. Austrian comedian who makes this point that to the bad guy, the bad thing he's doing is always the good thing. Very few people are, you know, very few criminals even are saying, what I'm doing is evil. They find a, a way of telling a story whereby they're not bad. And so to a lot of people, the only story that makes sense of why some immigrant communities are very successful, why their community has taken on the shape it has, is to blame immigrants or the injustice of a government or something like that. That that sort of the reason they come to that is not that it's that human or natural, it's that it's the only thing that can make sense of a lived experience. I think that's a really...
0: And, And it gets back to isolation because... I met a, a woman who owned a motel outside of Tampa, and she ran into a lot of trouble with the financial crisis. Her occupancy rate went way down, and she was facing foreclosure by the bank, and the bank was going after her really aggressively. And the only way she was able to hold onto the motel, which she fought for tooth and nail, was by turning to her extended family, both those in Florida, those in London, and those in Gujarat. And they helped her. And none of the people I wrote about in The Unwinding, except this woman, Usha Patel, had an extended family they could turn to for help. Either they weren't in touch with their family, they were sort of uh, estranged from it, or the family just didn't have the means to help them out. So she <laughs> it was such a striking thing that only this woman from India was able to weather <laughs> the financial crisis without drastic uh, consequences among all the people that I talked to. But, you know, Yash, I'm also thinking of another guy. Sorry to keep going back to this. No, this is fascinating. I think it's better than a lot of windy generalization from me (laughs) based on dubious reporting. But there was a guy I ran into south of Tampa who had a a welding operation called American Dream Welding. (laughs) It was the sign (laughs) out front that made me stop and talk to him. And of course, his American dream was going very badly, recession, his own body was turning against him. There was a drug gang across the fence. The government was imposing all these regulations on him. The banks were trying to choke him off. You know, it was a picture of a, a man completely besieged by forces larger than himself and kind of going under. And this was a true hardworking blue-collar guy who had supported himself all his life by working with his hands. And at one point, he told me he went into a hospital in order to get some medication for a chronic pain in his back. And the doctor, who he said was Iraqi, but I think was actually Indian, doubted his story, thought he was just trying to get some, some painkillers because he had a habit. And it pissed off the American Dream welding guy. And he told me this story with a kind of, you know, these Indian doctors or these Iraqi doctors or whatever they are come into our country and then start telling us what we can and can't do and and humiliating us. So I assumed that he, you know, had a deep animosity toward immigrants for whatever mix of reasons that we've talked about. A few years later, I called him for this piece on the election, expecting him to be You sort of wanted
1: to cast him as the Trump supporter. I thought
0: he was going to be a huge Trump supporter, that Trump was the answer to every resentment and longing and impulse that he had. No, he did not like Trump at all. He didn't trust him. And one thing he didn't like about him was the way Trump talks about immigrants, because this guy told me I have nothing against them. They work hard. They work harder than we do. So somehow... He had two thoughts in his head at the same time, or had gone from one to another, and maybe they were both there simultaneously. But it tells you that people are complicated, they can surprise you, and this gets to your point, Yasha, that bias is malleable. In some people, it's a fixed ideology or a deeply embedded feeling of hatred or of superiority that cannot be changed, and those people are truly deplorable. And can't be brought into any kind of politics that I want to be a part of. But there are other people whose biases wax and wane depending on their circumstances, depending on who's talking to them and what they're hearing and what kind of language is in the air. Trump has licensed those people, but I don't think all of them are hopeless. I think a lot of people are more like this guy from American Dream Welding who have a lot of different thoughts in their head and who may well feel affectionate toward the Mexican guy who's putting stucco on the wall across the highway from their welding shop.
1: I'm struck in general in this conversation by how with each anecdote you're implicitly deconstructing some kind of set of abstract notions, right? And and one of the ones that I've always thought was so unhelpful over the last months is this sort of set of debates about whether it's the economy or whether it's sort of culture and identity that caused the election. And in every story you tell, these two things are deeply intertwined. There's this real give and take between people's economic circumstances and their economic fears and the way that they tell a story about who they are, and then by implication, who the people around them are. Yeah. So so one of the things I found fascinating in a recent talk you gave is your account of sort of four stories of American identity. And you argue that basically there's sort of these four quite different notions of American identity that dominate our thinking today and that each of them have failed in a different way. So if I remember rightly, there's sort of roughly a, a sort of libertarian America, a globalized America, a multicultural America, and then the sort of Trumpian narrative of America first. What are these different narratives and what's wrong with them? I mean,
0: it, it used to be that the left and the right had each its own basic narrative. And for a long time, really through most of my adult life, they were pretty clear. The right-wing narrative was libertarian. It was that we are economic actors and the less interference by government, the better for everyone. Freedom is the the fundamental condition. And the more freedom, the better. And then the left-wing narrative was sort of a mix of multiculturalism, identity movements, liberation movements coming out of the the 60s and 70s, which got kind of codified in the universities after that, and a sort of soft social democracy where you have a belief in government support and at least lip service for unions, but also a sense of if you work hard and get an education above all and do the right things and don't make the fundamental mistakes of having children too soon or children before you get married or dropping out of school, then you will thrive in the global economy with some help. We won't let people drown. And those maybe came to their head in the 90s, where libertarianism became an extreme, almost nihilistic, anti-government ideology. And Clinton became the real incarnation of this sort of mix of multiculturalism and and cosmopolitanism. But I think the traumas of the last decade, decade and a half, they include 9 11, they include the financial crisis, especially the Great Recession, which just had a devastating effect, which I don't think people really have completely reckoned with, on uh, both people's livelihoods and their attitudes. The Tea Party as a reaction to the election of our first black president and to the return to sort of a social democratic liberalism in government. And then the Occupy Wall Street as a reaction to the financial crisis. All of these upheavals, which followed a period of stability and of kind of consolidation, they have splintered the narratives. And now I think they are more at odds with each other. And the real phenomenon is the emergence of this fourth one, which is Trump's, which we began to see during the Republican campaign and which showed how far out of touch the Republican leadership and donor class was from the Republican voters, because Trump didn't sound anything like the contract with America or Ronald Reagan, for that matter. And none of them really work because all of them, in some ways, and this is something that when I gave the talk at the New America Foundation, uh, my New Yorker colleague, Atul Gawande, pointed out that they all have a loser. They all depend on <laughs> someone making it and someone not. Libertarianism, most dramatically, where the losers sort of have only themselves to blame, globalized cosmopolitan America. We don't like to think about losers, but there's so many losers in the age of globalization, and that's been partly the the reason why Trump and Sanders emerged and Hillary Clinton lost, because she really is tied to that period of the 90s when globalization and cosmopolitan elite took over the Democratic Party. Multiculturalism excludes everyone who isn't in your group, in a sense. It doesn't, by definition, pick groups against each other, but that's always the result, And now we have the phenomenon of an emerging white minority identity group as the backbone of a new political movement. And then finally, Trump's America first. Anyone who isn't white and Christian and not just American, but from a particular background in America is a loser. So they don't unite. They don't create a kind of idea of being a citizen of a democracy that is larger than the definition of uh, the narrower definition of each of these stories.
1: So I want to do two things here. The first is actually to think out loud together a little bit about where the makings of a new national identity might come from, how we go beyond these four. But before we get there, I think I sort of want to understand better your critique of each of them. And I'm going to make some assumptions about our listeners here, which is always a bad thing to do. I will certainly assume that we see what's wrong with America first. I don't think we have to dwell on that. I will assume that for perhaps there are some libertarian listeners, they at least are well aware of some of the critiques of that sort of vision. But what I found most sort of interesting, was the critiques of globalized America and multicultural America. So perhaps let's let's dwell on each of those for a moment in greater detail. I mean, look, globalization is happening. We can't stop it. If phenomena like automation are really going apace, then it seems true at some level that we need to figure out how to succeed in this globalized economy in order for America to do well. So, you know, insofar as this identity is based on a recognition of those premises, what does it fail to explain or what does it fail to offer? Why is it that it has to have a loser? What of it sort of rankles with you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it is in some ways as inevitable as uh, the sunrise, which I think was Thomas Friedman's analogy to globalization, and you can't be against the sunrise. But it's had this effect of walling off large numbers of Americans from each other and making them invisible to each other. We live such different lives now. This was a feeling I that was very strong whenever I left my home in Brooklyn and went to some of the places I've been talking about. They felt in some ways farther away than when I used to travel to Iraq and Burma because I felt this sense of disorientation at knowing that I was not in the America that I lived in, and yet I knew I was still in America. And that was a kind of unsettling and disorienting feeling. And although liberals in the Democratic Party continue to pay a lot of lip service to making sure no one is left behind and education for all children, and their policies may well reflect that, maybe not strongly enough, but they reflect. But the real attitudes of people who are the beneficiaries who get to go to the ethnic restaurants and travel abroad on frequent flyer miles and send their kids to bilingual schools because they want to and hire low-cost household help. The people who really, for whom globalization is a kind of a playground, do they really understand and see and care about the Americans who have seen globalization come in more like a tornado than <laughs> a nice spring day I mean it just has this effect of weakening the ties the national ties and strengthening ties to both one's own smaller class and then maybe to a, a global class of people who are more like oneself than you know one's own countrymen so I don't know I, I think it's a sort of a moral and psychological breakdown that isn't any individual's fault I'm not saying people are become bad people I'm just saying this is what the globalized world does to to national solidarity to the coherence of a country and you know one might well say well why should we care what the national story is we're less and less members of nation states that's maybe the wrong entity to care about but i can't escape it for me it remains the basic political space where decisions are made that affect our lives so i think we we can either <laughs> accelerate its demise with God knows what consequences, or we can try to strengthen the ties. So that that's my that's even, my critique.
1: I have an even simpler answer to that, I think, to that particular point you just made, which is that when I look at 20th and early 21st century history, it's just obvious to me that nationalism is whether we want it to be or not, still the most powerful historical force. And what I take from Trump's election, what I take from the rise of over time populace throughout Europe and in other places, is that if we vacate the space of a nation and if we vacate the space of a common national identity, then the nastiest version of it is likely to win out. So, you know, I think there's certain positive things about nationalism. I became a US citizen recently and I'm very proud of that, and it has a meaning to me. But even beyond that, even leaving that aside, it just seems to me that unless we domesticate the state of a nation, unless we fill it with the right kind of content, it it's not going to go away. It's going to be filled for a lot of the population of a worse kind of. Conflict. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great way to put it, Yasha. And liberals are always underestimating its power, partly because they they may not feel it in themselves so much, or they may think it's not a good thing. They go immediately to the flag waving, boot stomping version of nationalism, and so they don't want to have anything to do with it, and they want to be global citizens and members of a. Uh, transnational movement of some kind. So yeah, it's inevitable. And you're absolutely right that if you ignore it, or if you think that it's fading, you will leave it to the uglier side of nationalism to take over. And I I remember Samuel Huntington published a book, his last book, I think, about 10 or 15 years ago. I think it might be Who We Are. And I remember it was reviewed savagely, including in The New Yorker and other places, because it Made some kind of particular claims about American identity that made it uh, harder for Latinos, for example, to qualify because they're not Anglo Protestants. And it, yeah, it's, it had these large claims that seemed both dubiously founded but also borderline racist. And yet, Huntington was making some pretty powerful points about American identity. And I, I had the feeling that the critics, Weren't just responding to the racism, but to the whole idea of American identity, which made them uncomfortable. And I was looking at some of the reviews of that book when I was working on that piece just before the election. And it struck me that, yeah, you if you abandon that field entirely, then Donald Trump is going to march on to it.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. And even sort of a concept of flag waving, well, what's the meaning of a flag, right? Again, in Europe, I think in a lot of countries, the meaning of a flag is sort of ethnic, but in America, it didn't used to be. And that's something that Europeans miss. You know, the first comment every European makes who travels in America a little bit outside New York City or something is, oh my God, all of these flags, you know, and, 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 and they take it to be this sort of disgusting nationalism. But you know, the flag is a symbol for a republic and a republic has political values. And that's, I think, an important element of it. Of course, it has a double valence because it can also revert quite quickly to the USA-USA sort of chance of a Trump campaign. But I want to hold you to another thing because I think your explanation of why globalized America comes from a real instinct and actually is perfectly understandable and admirable as an approach, but ultimately excludes so many people that it's a problem it made a lot of sense to me. So I want to put you the same challenge around the idea of multicultural America, right? Because again, you know, for me coming from Europe and thinking of a problem, of a challenge those societies face so much as how do you transition from a deeply monocultural, monoethnic imaginary of what a nation is to one that does include different ethnicities and so on. There's something, and in particular, sort of in opposition to America first nationalism, there's something so appealing about multicultural America, about the idea that what we should celebrate is precisely difference and these different identity groups and so on. And yet I think you make quite a compelling case of why that falls short as well, and why that has sort of people it excludes as well. So what's your concern there?
0: My concern is that what start as not just, justifiable but necessary and essential movements of justice and equal rights and equal citizenship, which was the language of the civil rights movement. It was not about identity. It was about citizenship and equality and holding America to its own promises and claims about itself. I mean, that's why in the I Have a Dream speech, King goes back to the 18th century and the promissory note that was signed by the founders. Even though it excluded blacks at the time, it included the possibility for all men being created equal. And he said it came back marked insufficient funds. So that brilliant metaphor was King's way of forcing America to take seriously its own founding ideas. What's happened in my life, and really very powerfully in the last couple of decades, is that claims about citizenship and equality have become ends in themselves, kind of turning back on the self as the source of all meaning and all expression and all solidarity, so that you are judged by who you are and whether you have the right to say something, whether what you say is sayable or not. In college, you are urged to study your own culture, which is to me even a dubious notion since we also have this thing called American culture, which I think is strong and is capacious and includes all the groups that have been historically marginalized by America. And it just hardens the boundaries and the sort of the area of play so that rather than leading to a politics that forces people to address those who don't look like them and don't think like them, it encourages people to turn back on their own group and to sort of come to judgments based on the group rather than on these old-fashioned notions that are now in disrepute, like universal values and reason and the founding ideas of the American republic. So I think it all starts in justice, and its claims for justice are you know the powerful force it has. But in the end, it becomes. And we're living through a time right now of really rather stark separatism, where there are no trespassing signs all over the place. And people watch what they say in a way that is not healthy. Their language is monitored in a way that is not free. And kids on college campuses who don't feel that they want to be part of a strong identity movement basically bow out and don't get into it because it's dangerous and you will be shamed on social media if you make a mistake. So it's not a good atmosphere. It's not a good atmosphere for liberal politics. It plays into the narrative of the right and the interests of the right. And, and it also politically you know, makes it harder to create a coalition you know, that's truly liberal. So it's tricky because I don't like the dismissive sound of some right-wing critiques of political correctness, since I think, in some ways, political correctness begins with justice. And justice is something that you really ignore at your peril. But it's true that it's become an end, a sort of end in itself in an odd, kind of codified and ritualized way so that people find it very hard to have natural conversations and persuade each other, identify with each other. Obama gave a speech last year about this saying you really need to try to get into the skin of someone who isn't like you. And he was talking to white people about black Americans who see black people getting shot by the police without consequences. And he was talking to black people who may think that a 60-year-old white man in Ohio is privileged, but that man may not think he's very privileged in his own eyes. So Obama was really pushing hard for what I think of as liberal values, which include an imagination that can transcend identities and that can think more in terms of universal values.
1: That's a crucial point to me, I think, that it's really actually about the values we ultimately stand for, and that the moments when I get nervous about identity politics is the moments when it actually sets itself quite explicitly against liberal values. So it seems to me there are sort of three ways of thinking about it, where the first is, well, look, universal values are the answer, and our constitution already guarantees everybody equal rights, regardless of what race and ethnicity they are. And that's the end of it, and there's no problems in reality. We should just talk about how wonderful the Constitution is and close our eyes to the injustices of the present. And I think that can be the attitude of a lot of of complacent people, even on the decent right you know, not the America first sort of stance of Trump, but even other people who I think are sometimes willfully blind to the real racial injustice yeah, in our experience. Yeah, that's right. And then there's a counter reaction to it that says, well, look, you know, you guys go on about the values of the constitution and universalism and pretend to live in this race blind society, but we don't look at all of those injustices. And so if all of this is a scam, let's give up on the idea of a race blind society. Let's give up on the idea of universal values. Everything has got to be about identity and about our groups and about special rights for people who have been treated badly, because that's the only way that we can get out of this hypocrisy. And I get the instinct behind that, but I still think that there's a middle path which recognizes the deep injustices in our society and recognizes the urgency of struggling against them and certainly allows for a role for group identity in that political struggle but that still envisages the society we want to build as one where you're not defined by your identity, as one where you can spend all of your time with your religious group or your ethnic group if you want. That's part of the freedom of a liberal society grants you. But where a lot of people have a double freedom, not just of saying, I can go and just spend all of my time in my community and I'll be treated decently, but also that I can go and be a part of society at large and not be defined by what my skin color is, or what my sexuality is, or what my gender is, or where I'm from. And I think we're sometimes in danger of losing that goal out of sight.
0: I don't know if you remember during the campaign, Hillary Clinton was confronted by some Black Lives Matter demonstrators backstage at an event in New Hampshire that she was about to go on. And They were essentially, in a calm and respectful way, pressing her to apologize for what they think the Clinton administration of the 90s did with mass incarceration, the crime bill, and her language about super predators. And she wasn't going to apologize, but what she did do was say to them, look, I sympathize with your project. Give me an agenda. Turn your movement to reform and to actual changes in the criminal justice system. And and she was asking them essentially to take part in the political system, to not just be a movement with uh, a powerful name and powerful symbols, but to have specific demands that could be answered with specific remedies, legislative, etc. And the guy who was sort of speaking for the others said, don't tell us what to do and we won't tell you what to do. He was saying, that's not your business. Our business isn't your business. Your business isn't our business. And it was a sort of way of saying, we will make our own decisions and we're not going to play your game. And she was quite tough on them about that because she was saying, then you'll never have justice. You'll never have remedies. You'll remain outside. When people are inviting you in, you have to seize that opportunity and try to use it for power politics is about power and who has it. Uh, She's giving them a pretty good lesson in uh, democratic electoral politics, but they weren't interested in it. It was all videotaped and you can watch it. And it was an incredibly interesting moment because it showed kind of the confrontation of those two different ideas and why in some ways they can't speak to each other. And and I think why one of them has limited itself in a way that it doesn't need to and is self-destructive.
1: One of my students, this is a related point, one of my students this past time came up with a great phrase that, you know, you don't have a coalition unless it includes people you disagree with. And I think there's sort of a political purism sometimes that's come to the fore at the moment that sort of disregards that. Listen, before we close, I just want to think about a simple question about these four identities and the problem with them. And that's, you know, I think your critique of each of them is persuasive to me. I think clearly none of these are capable of binding us together as Americans and showing us a way forward. But the question to me then becomes, do we start from scratch, or is there an element in each of these narratives, or at least perhaps in the libertarian, the globalized, the multicultural one, I don't know that there's one in the America First one, but an element in some of these instincts that could go into an overall identity? Is there something to start with in each of these approaches, this sort of, reverence for constitutional values in the libertarian America, the optimism about the future and the idea that we can actually get something from an interconnected world in the idea of a globalized America. And of course, the idea that there's important racial injustices to overcome in the idea of a multicultural America that could in theory somehow be put together and make a bigger overall whole. Or do you Mm. think we kind of have to start from scratch?
0: I just don't think it happens that way. I mean, it may happen that way in political essay writing. Um, (laughs) where we're trying to assemble something out of ideas that already exist and make make it stronger. But I I think the way politics changes is when there's a, a shift in the emotional weather of the country, of the public, and certain language and ideas that meet it. And I don't know what that shift is going to be. Right now, I feel as if we're in a deep hole with our government in the hands of people who are looking more and more like, you know, Ukrainian oligarchs or Central Asian nepotists, (laughs) you know, where corruption is just the way things happen in government. And democratic values are not even really paid much lip service. And then the resistance, as it calls itself, seems to be doubling down on its own ideas about The rights of groups uh, and Trump gives lots and lots of ammunition to identity politics because he is, you know, making it clear that there are groups that are targeted. It would be an intellectual exercise to talk about it, and that's what we do. (laughs) But I don't know how much payoff it would have in reality, since I, I just think these things happen in response to shifts in events and shifts in people's feelings. Just as the what I call the Roosevelt Republic was a response to the Great Depression and to fascism in World War II. And the Reagan Republic was a response to stagflation and the downbeat period of Watergate and Vietnam.
1: So let me put the question this way. Do you think that the mixture between the Great Recession and the rise of Trump and so on might be one of those turning points that actually we could come out of the dark and scary experience of these years with a reconfigured sense of what we share and how we think about ourselves?
0: Yes, it's possible. And there are moments in the opposition to Trump when I feel like this surge of activism is really something that can have a future and that can be built on and isn't just a return to the same old. The thing that most interests me is the emphasis on democracy, the emphasis on the values of a democracy that Trump has just trashed. It reminds people of what those values are and and makes them realize they care about them. They care about whether the son-in-law is using the father-in-law in the office to get rich. They care about whether Russia is involved in choosing winners and losers in our presidential elections. Well, here's the thing that worries me, Yasha, is that the objects of concern of a kind of national sense of sympathy and solidarity should include Trump voters, because they are, some of them, many of them are getting the short end of the stick right now and are, you know, feeling left out. Well, how do you reach them? They're Trump voters. And they're the diehard Trump voters. They're the ones who can't be persuaded by, <laughs> by Mueller or by Comey or by anyone. So that's a really tricky one since the division, the polarization is exactly down lines that ought to be grounds for unity and for solidarity. It's pretty hard to feel solidarity with someone who voted for Trump.
1: I don't have the answer to that question, but I think it leaves us on exactly the right question. Both, I think, the hope that we might be able to respond with a reinvigorated sense of the importance of democracy and democratic norms, but also the real challenge of how do we include people who didn't just vote in 2016 once for Trump out of frustration with whatever, but people who actually deeply believe in that ideology, how do we include them in our political project? Because if we don't, it's impossible to think about how we do, but if we don't, then, then this kind of politics will keep coming back. So that, I think, is the right challenge, and I don't think we found answers to that but you've given us a lot of food for thought. Well, I would
0: love to have answers. So please let me know whenever you get them, Yasha, because you're smarter about this than I am. So I think you're going to get there first.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel that neither of us are going to get there. But (laughs) um, thank you for this wonderful conversation, George. It was fun. We'll we'll just have to have you back on to talk about all of those things um, a few months from now when perhaps we're all smarter. Okay, thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Invite your friends to a dinner party. And don't serve the main course until they've pledged to subscribe to The Good Fight. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to at newamerica.org.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license, thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit
1: newamerica.org.